Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. What is happening, everyone? Welcome to The Garage. My name's Dan Massimino. Thank you for tuning in, listening, subscribing, liking, hanging out, grabbing a stool, spending time with us on this awesome day. If you've been joining us, then you've done this cold open before, but for those uh, playing on their phones in the back, I'll go over it for you again, give you the rundown. Here in The Garage, we're reliving our fateful days back in shop class when we were getting yelled at, but we're doing it in a little different way. We've been bringing the industry's best craftspeople and their toolkits together to help us build a, some pillars and shape the path needed for any retail media network to construct innovation. To my virtual left, as always, you want to know who the best is? It's him. It's the way he flies. Ice cold, no mistakes. The Vice President of Product and Innovation and my very own Iceman, Evan Havorka. How are you, man? Doing good, sir. Love the intro. Every every episode's a new adventure, but uh, Iceman's probably one of the nicest things you've called me, so I'm going to take that. Doing well. Cold as ice, baby. You can always be my wingman. <laughs> I'll be your Huckleberry. Throw another <laughs> Val Kilmer reference out there. Yeah, well, I like Doing it. Doing well. Super excited for our... our uh, kind of capstone one of our capstone episodes here bringing in some talent that's really seen everything we've talked about this isn't by mistake we've gotten through measurement targeting partnership pretty much all the pillars of retail media what it takes to build it where it's headed and now we're going to bring in the guys who've been talking about it for the last two years nonstop, and see if we've gone off the rails or if anything we've talked about in the last six or seven episodes has any validity i can tell you we have gone on the off the rails but hold on now let me put on my best guy in a movie or TV preview voice, right? Let's let's give this a try. In a world where crossover events only happen on law or medical dramas or even on very special occasions in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, The Garage brings you the crossover event you didn't know you needed. What's grown out of both a professional and personal friendship trio is nothing short of remarkable. These three industry experts have built and led omni-channel activity and some at some of the top companies in the world. Their extensive knowledge in data and retail commerce have established one of the best arenas to share retail industry knowledge. With over 340 episodes in the tank, ladies and gentlemen, I present to you Sri Rajagopalan, Peter V.S. Bond, PBSB if you need him, and my guy Brian Gildenberg, known far and wide as the CPG guys. What's going on, fellas? It's an honor. How you doing? I'm, I'm here to have my oil changed. Am I, am I at the wrong garage? What's no, 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 you're good. Grab a ticket, sit okay. in the back. We'll get to you when we're ready. Okay, thank you. I was told this was a Wendy. We have fries. Well, I haven't been home in two weeks. I just got back and I got to wake up at 5.30 a.m. tomorrow because I got to be on the set of a music video with my older daughter. And I'm one of the drivers. I was going to say, do not pretend you're not cool because we've seen it on LinkedIn, hustling the merchandise for your musically gifted daughter. How's that going for you? That's going fun. I actually made money. She said, I'm the sales guy. I better sell. She gave me quotas. And guess, gentlemen, who beat the quotas. Okay. Showing up. There we go. There isn't one ice man, but two ice men. (laughs) Ice men. (laughs) I love it. That's awesome. Nice. Guys, we're so thrilled to have you here. You know, if you've, if you've been listening to a few of the episodes in the past and, and our folks that have tuned in religiously if we've been doing it, building these p- pillars towards retail media nirvana, we started with uh, really crafting an innovation space. So the garage, this physical and, and virtual manifestation of a, of a space for brain power to thrive. We then took an inventory of our assets. What in the heck do we have and how can we redeploy it in a meaningful and relevant way? We talked about what our role is. What are we supposed to do as retailers? And when should we get the heck out of the way? We then sat down and decided to figure out puberty and grow up a little bit. And growing up awkwardly in the retail media network, what were those those tough times and those barriers we had to overcome? We sat with Claire and we talked about measuring everything. And if you don't measure it, who cares? And why we need why it's so important to measure everything. But you know, having you in here, we really want to talk about awareness uh, as we sit in a retail media network. What are we doing to the industry? What what have we changed? What have we caused? What are the outages? And you guys sit uniquely positioned to where you're talking to a lot of folks and you see every, you're omniscient. You're the seer, the watcher, if you will. 
So we just wanted to pick your brains, talk to you a little bit about what you've seen go down, how the industry has changed, and we'd love to just, you know, open the space and fill it with your knowledge, if you would. Yeah, by all means. I mean, there's a lot going on in this industry right now, and I one of the things I think about is uh, what's needed to adapt and grow this industry. From the CPG side, right, decisions on investments against retail media networks are increasingly moving from the shopper marketing manager assigned to a specific retailer up to centers of excellence, maybe the chief marketing officer, and even to boards of directors. Like I, I talk about this very often. One of my favorite conferences to go to is Cagney, which is Consumer Analyst Group in New York. It's all the equity analysts get together and publicly traded staples companies parade in front of them and talk about what they're doing from a strategic standpoint. And, and at their recent conference in Boca Raton, I heard no fewer than three major CPGs make mention of the fact that they are adjusting their marketing budget to account for investment in retail media networks to compensate for the signal loss that is occurring around, in terms of audience size around linear television and, and print media. So it's real, it's important, and what you guys are doing is helping, helping them in a, in a digital age figure out how they're going to reach audiences in a meaningful way. I would say not so fast, my friend. Not all is rosy in the retail media network as Peter made it out to be. I think retail media is actually hitting maturity 2.0. was launching, scaling big budgets, millions of dollars. 2.0 is CPG brands have woken up and understood this is a force and this is an investment and the dollars aren't small, which means now the actual tension in the industry will start measurement techniques, optimization, size of budget. How does it compare and stack against other forms of media? Not that some of this wasn't happening already, but I think 2024 is the year we're going to see a bunch of that happening, and um, it might not be all that rosy. I resent the implication of the good, the bad, and the ugly, because you had the good and the bad so far. So that, that, leaves, <laughs> that leaves me in an uncomfortable so spot. Um, but one, one I feel qualified for, I'm going to just go to good, the good, the bad, and the, when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. I think there's a couple of weird things going on in retail media right now. One, I do think that for the most part, brands and agencies are beginning to realize <clears throat> that retail media in the United States, the way that it's come to life, which is so Amazon-centric, that that Amazon-centricity is an interesting way to solve the problems of the Albertsons Media Collective, right? So, and people are trying to bring what Amazon's good at, and to some degree, so are the retailer media networks themselves. And I don't know that, I think people are now beginning to realize that the problem of an omni-channel omni predominantly store-based retailer with a media network is actually a different business problem to solve. And I think you're starting to see some people try to figure out what in the heck that actually means. So I think that's encouraging, although I think that's, that journey is still very much on, I think we're very much on day one, to borrow a phrase, on that, that step of the journey. I think the second thing, which I think is a broader issue than retail media, is that there's a couple of major pillars of media in general that are just kind of broken. I mean, one is obviously linear TV, and I suspect at some point today we'll talk about the shift to connected TV and the implications for a retail media network that can do individually traceable purchase data and link it to individually traceable watch data in a connected TV ecosystem, which I think is super powerful. And then the, uh, the, the, second, the second piece is I think brands are charmingly delusional about how effective most of the rest of their media spend is. This idea that, oh God, there's no more money for retail media, <laughs> whatever, right? Like, how much garbage are we spending money on in the, in the media ecosystem today that isn't retail media? Between linear television, which is broken and needs rethinking, though obviously it still works to some degree, and then the whole search ecosystem, which is also to some degree broken. I was talking to a leading brand the other day who has taken all of search marketing, not retail search marketing, all of search marketing, and classified it as a sales expense. They view Google as nothing but a, a tool for physical product distribution at this point. There's nothing marketing about it at all. We are basically buying end caps on Google, so we're going to treat it like buying end caps. And that's a whole big piece. So I think there's some major shifts going on that retail media is part of, 
that I don't know that brands have their head around as confidently as the people that will pretend on the brand side that they've got media spend optimized will, will let you know. How dare you say that that ridiculously expensive sampling event that I do at Times Square isn't completely measurable and where I should be spending my marketing money? <laughs> oh, it's, oh, it's precise. We've got, we've got one-to-one measurement. It's like my kid's lemonade stand. So, uh, PVSB, you don't like hope as a strategy? Me. That's not a strategy you build your pyramids on? <laughs> hope is a strategy no. when it's combined with faith. Faith you and know, hope. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, which kind of begs the question around like – Around you dictate your own destiny and you accept it and you say it actually worked out. Oh, I love that. That spiritual guru. Maybe that's faith. faith wow. 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 wow, 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 we piped in Joel Austin's <laughs> podcast. Goodness. This is crazy. I choose to just say I reject your reality and substitute my own like they did on Mythos. There we Alternate go. facts. I like it. <laughs> hey, I want to say this. You know, when I think about best in class, right, which is kind of what we're all, okay, now we've got this new performance mechanism. How do we, how do we get really good at it, right? Uh, I think it starts for brands with partnering with experts who are very good at elements of the process, you know, content creation, audience identification, head terms, bidding strategy. Some some companies try to do it in-house. They don't necessarily do it for every brand. Maybe they do it on s- some of the stuff they do in-house or from smaller nascent brands. Big brands, you got to win. I mean, you just have to win. And so you want to avail yourselves of agencies that that are experts in building out those capabilities. But, you know, beyond that, once you've kind of done that, retail media is part of, it doesn't stand alone, right? It's not, it's part of a 360 surround approach with, for retailers like Albertsons, right? The prime focus is on supporting in-store retail activation, right? Success is going to be driven by the ability to target meaningful and sizable audiences, right? Treating each audience with an appropriate experience for that audience. So someone who is new to brand, all you want to do is get them to buy one more time versus someone who's a loyal brand buyer, you want to get them to buy more of the brand. So the offers that you give with retail media have to be highly structured that are relevant to that audience. You want to ensure that the content is retail ready. You know, content on retailer on Albertsons Media Collective is not necessarily the same as retailer B or retailer C, right? You want full funnel execution that you can action against, and you want to be able to include performance measurement that is relevant and meaningful to the CPGs that are paying to execute it. So that, to me, is kind of like the fundamentals to really good execution. Now, I'm sure Shri is now going to tell you everything that I missed, but that, for me, is kind of like the starting point. I'm, I'm going completely somewhere else, right? I do want to, I also want to put in there the chaos that it's causing in the industry, right? If you wear a brand lens, you're working with Google, you're working with Yahoo, there might have been seven, eight mechanisms of media that your agency worked with you on. Every retailer has now got a retail media. Many much smaller retailers have basically said my, what used to be shopper marketing vehicles of the past is retail media and that's the path we're going to go down now. All of a sudden, if you're an agency who's not trained as it is in working with even the biggest retail media agencies, one of them being yourselves, the Albert Media Collective, now you got to deal with small ones you have no idea what the heck you're doing. You, you have not received that training. And it's a major chaos on a brand media budget. And that's 2024 is the year of reckoning to get all of that stuff fixed. And it's going to require extreme cooperation between brands and retailers and more, more brand, I would say more agencies and retailers to figure it out. Yeah, hey man, I think we as an industry can do a better job too. Retail media as an industry can do a better job showing up, right? We saw a similar evolution in diversity with social. First we had Facebook and then Instagram and Pinterest and Snapchat, Twitter, now TikTok. Some of those are, are growing media investments. Some of those are quickly shrinking media investments. That's not what we're here to talk about today. What a diverse set of places just to do social. Each have their own login platform, each have their own match rate, each have their own audiences, Measurement is, is wildly different across, although they are starting to standardize now. But it did cap out, right? It did at least cap out at like probably three or four major social platforms is, is what a typical brand or RMN would invest in. And then there's meaningful volume behind it. You, know, you get on with 
with meta and you're going to have a lot of inventory to play with a lot of adjuncts to play with retail media in the beginning was similar we had a couple of the early winners and now now everyone's showing up the volume of that diversity especially if you're a large cpg with with coverage on 10 10 different rmns that's not going to be a sustainable especially when retailers are not ad tech partners right We, we don't build consistently we have no industry standard to go off of and then we also are not uh, google where we've got armies of engineers standing at the ready to build cool stuff and make it scale and do 24 7 support on everything there's there's pretty good examples out there but that's not in the dna of a retailer typically so we've got to standardize you, you do but i mean i also i mean yes i think that's i think that's true and more standards would help i do think that at some point you know generally speaking unless unless there's a structural reason why a market remains not this way Buyers set the terms of the engagement in markets, not sellers, because buyers have the money. So buyers, buyers by and large, are going to want this to be more standardized, particularly for the media networks that are too small to individually care about. They're, they're going, they're going to require them to standardize. And whether it's the IAB or whether it's a platform or whether it's you know a bunny rabbit that pops out of a hat, somebody's going to somebody's going to take the myriad of retail media networks that are too small to command anyone's individual attention for very long and suggest to them that standardizing is a way to as a way to aggregate audience share is a much better way to sell media than to try to do it independently. It's the same shift that digital went through uh, as it shifted yeah, to programmatic fair. over the years. I mean, that's the basically Brian, do yeah, you think that I mean, I think that Do you that, think that the fact that there is a the that in the background the 800 pound gorilla is the fact that for the better part of 100 years the buyer was the retailer and the brand was the the yeah. the you know the the seller that that has that complicates or muddies the waters to move towards a buyer driven yeah. decision on what the media mechanisms look like well i think it does in two ways one for most, again, and particularly for the smaller retailers that don't command the attention of a media buyer, most of the people responsible for spending money with that retailer have a, have a not even a vested, but a you know Will Ferrell and old school naked interest in selling things through that retailer because that's what they're paid to do. So if it's the sales team for XYZ small retailer in America that's responsible for the media spend, they're going to spend it however the retailer wants it because they think that's going to help them achieve their sales objective. That's a that's an incentive breakdown on the brand side that causes that. Yes, I think secondarily, the closer and in those ecosystems. The closer you get to the commercial spend, which is Shri knows way better than I do, is a murky and strange part of the world that is almost by design non-comparable across retailers, because that's the way that the commercial the retailers have set up their relationship with their brands over the years. The when you try to integrate into the commercial plan, there's a number of stumbling blocks in that. One of which is is that the commercial plan by retailer is even more different in terms of how money is spent even structurally not amount but just the structure and the way it's spent it's more different than the media spend is so this notion of trying to pull together an integrated joint business plan over way oversimplifies the media part of the problem and then massively oversimplifies the problem of that the commercial team has a very complicated and per- almost entirely unique relationship with that retailer that's again very hard to standardize so Brian and Peter have decided to be eloquent today, but I'm bringing problems today. So here's the next one. The next one that we got to solve for collectively, and that is, you know, if you go back three, five years when retail medias were in the startup phase and then through the evolution and maturity last three years, largely the partnership for retail media from the brand side has been on the commercial selling side. As a result, retail media has been a sugar high on the lower funnel activation piece, which means largely search, because search delivers results. And as a result, all the metrics that we traditionally will use in advertising, such as ROAS have looked fantastic, artificially fantastic, because it's focused on the lower funnel activation. There's a deep rooted problem that is caused, which is that's isolated brands from being able to put brand objectives in the full funnel, upper funnel, middle funnel, and focus heavily on lower funnel only the growth of retail media requires a brand partnership, not a commercial selling partnership. And I publicly say now, largely commercial selling functions in CPG have failed the industry on retail media while retailers have looked the other way. Mm. I, I, 
Go ahead. I think that's a. I think that's interesting because I don't. I don't know. <laughs> only one of us. Only one of us runs a commercial team here, but um, but I don't know that it was the commercial team's problem to solve. I guess that's the that would be the stumbling block. It seems like that problem got kind of foisted on them by the by the retailer. I think the other interesting thing is, and this is a this comes out of Evan. I'm actually curious for your take on this too. This comes out of a conversation I was having with the trade desk at a one of these industry things and there there were those two right so at the ieb event in september the dude from roundell and mike Myrna from mars were on a panel and they were talking back and forth about who needs to lead the relationship for a brand in the in a more integrated approach and even the roundell person and mike who works in the shop and marketing world both agreed that the commercial teams kind of got to lead that a little bit just because you know they're the ones that kind of know what's going on right so this whole promise of closed loop measurement and would work way better if you had a closed loop <laughs> plan, right? Like if you were if you're actually planning to do something on the other end of it, you would enhance the likelihood that what you were measuring is going to work. Um, no, I, I think we're and then, missing uh, a huge chunk of the, the data and the relationship side of making retail media work better. Even if we just selfishly look at how does the RMN perform better for the CPG, knowing when all those promos are hitting for the merch, knowing when the end caps, the coupons... Are we increasing shelf space? Or are we decreasing shelf space? Is there regional goals and objectives? Those those merchants and CPG salespeople, they'll plan out 24 months in advance. And uh, the data is just sitting there and we're doing six-week cycles and not always honoring that. You know, at the collective, we've, we've really invested heavily in our merch relationships. They're far from perfect because there's just so many. But for the big, the VIPs, yes. the big CPGs, when we've brought that world together and you can plan with a little more thought and care, and a little higher level strategic ownership at the, yeah. at the CPG, we see the results in spades. But it's a it's an effort, right? That's not a technology that exists yet on how to just manage 70 or 200, 500 JBPs. Joint business plans for anyone following the acronym BINGO. Well, I'll make one more observation. I promise I'll show up for a minute. But because I think that's, I think that's interesting, though, because what you just said, where... You've, you can only manage so many of the big things. The word manage is an interesting one there because that starts to get at this managed service versus programmatic question that I know people keep bringing up from a retail media point of view. Because I like to take obnoxious positions on things sometimes, I think the, look, retail media is a managed service environment, right? Like it just is. Like whether the mechanics of buying are programmatic or not, there's 76 million things you're trying to manage. You're going to manage the biggest ones with a human being. So the brands that are big enough to command human attention of a, at a retail media network are effect getting a managed service relationship, even if the keyboard strokes they use to buy the media are programmatic. So I think that there's this weird rush to try to programmaticize retail media in a way that really just doesn't make sense given how it actually works. But but that's just... and. Anyway, I just think that's one of the things that is going to make retail media a little bit different. There's always, I think, going to be, especially for the large brands, a manual component to it of trying to stitch this stuff together that I think media buyers in particular are on. Well, I think you bring up a good point because if you speak with any of our merchants and a lot of folks that have been around for a long time, it doesn't matter what the new blinking lights and wires and shiny thing is. It comes down to relationships within the business. And so while it is you know, looking for that programmatic and trying to get it more autom automation built into the system. Having the conversation at the end of the day is what's going to get things moving and what's going to get the decision made. I know our merchants see themselves as the buyer, not particularly in the media space, but just kind of period, ask any one of them. And that's where those conversations and, and, and where we can really get the dial shifted there. So I want to ask you guys, what kind of new dialogues are happening that weren't there before within these conversations from a CPG side to a merchandise side to a to a retailer side, what have you heard them talk about that that we haven't seen before? So I'm going to take a contrarian viewpoint because I've approached this whole podcast today as I'll be different as I declared right up front. Yeah, I, no, I like it. I for one do not believe, as I'm out and about in the corners of this country, state by state, at some of the largest retailers to the smallest retailers in the world, that the merchants have truly as a universal truth across the board, embrace retail media as a mechanism to drive outcomes. I'm largely, what I see in the field is, there's a separate retail media team, the RMN, the agency. Albertson's Media Collective is not the prime example here of where I'm going with the merchants not being integrated. But that's like, I would say 70% of the universe. 
The problem with that is in the last three years when the sugar high of search was delivering outcomes, life was good for everybody, including the retailer and the brand. Now that consumption has dried up across the ecosystem period, that formula is not going to work. For retail media to sustain and grow, merchants are going to have to own it as another tactic to drive traffic in store, to drive conversion in store, build holistic plans that truly took yesterday's shopper marketing and infuse them with digital. We, we use this word omni-channel in our hip pocket as though it's the rewriting of the entire Webster's Dictionary. It's darn well about time we put omni-channel to practice. Yeah, I'm Preach, man. Amen. Amen. Uh, I'm going to add to what Shri said and, and say that a lot of that also has to do with the skill set of the people who are charged with doing this, yeah. right? The days of – it's not going to happen by simply centers of excellence doing the execution. Shri will talk at length about rotating people in from the sales organization, from the traditional brand marketing organization, and get to a point where these skills are in the DNA of every element of the process, the supply chain, the, the brand market, or what have you, where this, to some degree the centers of excellence, you'll know it's working when they become largely obsolete. Mm. So there's a lot of work that goes there. The For me, a lot of the issue is, and we talked about this being a managed service business, right? All too often, brands rely on their traditional agencies of record to to start them along this process. And all too often, the content they create is brand compliant. It is not retail ready, right? It does it, it takes into account what the brand manager is looking for. It doesn't take into account how the shoppers at retailer A or retailer B or retailer C tend to shop. And sometimes it's it's largely universal. Other times there are there are significant differences. And so what goes into that? That's why you need experts that are in that space. You know, I work for an agency when I'm not podcasting. You have to be focused on understanding the nuanced differences of each of those retailers and fight against the tendency of the brand agency to push their brand messaging down to fit into you know their square brand messaging to fit into the round hole of the retailer that's just not going to work yeah. anymore uh, under under the auspices of the consumer is looking for a unified omni-channel experience <laughs> no they're not like that's not true like the consumer is looking for an experience that solves whatever problem they have at the moment they have it like the the, the notion that the consumer wakes up every day and quests for a unified omni-channel experience the only unified um, I will listen but brand to managers that. talk about it all the time as though we're like like something worthy of religious pursuit and try to make it uber consistent across everything. And I just, again, it's, you know, not only is the commerce landscape itself different, but different retailers are different, right? There are a multitude of categories that the shoppers on a journey at Albertsons are on a very different journey than they are at Walmart, right? So there are really good reasons to think about that that journey or that path quite differently than the content that serves the need in that journey would would also theoretically be quite and different. And I want to go well. back to something Peter lightly hinted at by using the word center of excellence, a pet peeve of mine, there was a time and place for center of excellences when industry knowledge didn't exist, but now we've rewritten the all of retail as omni-channel as the playbook and the Webster's dictionary, right? It's the omni-channel dictionary by the Iceman. So in that sort of scenario, I don't think I want to leave a message here that merchants need to get more savvy at this. I'll tell you in many places, merchants are savvier than CPG companies in this space. What yep. CPG companies really need to do is get rid of the notion of, hey, they're sitting on the seventh floor and that's the digital guy or the digital gal. Oh, yeah, he's got it. That's the e-commerce person. Mm -hmm. Those days of all, it, those days should have been sunset like a year ago, two years ago. If you're going to thrive and have a career now, no more talking about those digital people as freaks and as individual contributors <laughs> and they're just... They're using the same rewritten Webster's Dictionary as everybody else, right? So I actually believe CPG companies need to own it first. CPG brands need to take people who are skilled in the digital ecosystem, train them on brick and mortar, and to go on to do bigger and better things. Because it's not the future. The other thing that's a pet peeve of mine, especially when it comes to retail media, is when someone says, oh, retail media is going to be so much prominent in the future. 
I'm like, what year exactly is the future? Was that 2021, 22, 23? Like, and then we start thinking movies back to the future. <laughs> One, two, and three. Uh, Revving up the DeLorean to 88 <laughs> miles an hour. Sure. <laughs> Trey, this is great. This is this is like Festivus. This is the airing of the grievances, man. I, I love like, it. Uh, I'm not home for two weeks. I'm out and about. I'm at concerts. You know, seven cities yeah. in 14 days. I'm going to put on the hair shirt soon. This is great. I love that Dan um, and I can uh, create a space for you guys to air those grievances. You know, always the bride, never the bridesmaid. Or how does that saying go? You guys can finally just... I don't know, but... It's another festival. I don't know, but the oh, three of them are going to get my bill for therapy. Don't use on me. That's PTSD. That's 2009 <laughs> Sugar Bowl. We beat Miami. We got to number nine, and then they wouldn't take us in the college football top four playoffs. We were the, then the word bridesmaids was associated with Virginia Tech. Go look it up. 2009. Okay, okay. I do not get me started okay. on college football right now, because we'll go down a completely negative path with me on board with you, Sheree, because it is just not where it's supposed to be at right now in, in 2023, Florida frankly. State. Preach, preach. Oh, oh. I think what, what a lot of you hit yeah. on, though, I mean. But, but, but Florida State ahead, will lose by, I mean, Florida State will lose by 100 points to any of the other teams in the playoffs. Doesn't mean they didn't deserve to be there. Go ahead, Evan. <laughs> Evan, switch That's to true. hockey quickly. Yeah, right? Hurry, I mean, quick. what's going on switch with hockey? Field hockey, ice hockey. Yes, yeah, a sport with a sensible playoff structure. How many hockey. Canadians are going to be named Connor? Like, who do we invite? Yeah, how many Connors are we going to see in the next uh, 20 years? We've got two of the top. Two of the top players showing up with the same first name, never before seen in the record books. Now they're uh, taking over all of the NHL stats. But um, back to all of the the through line that I was listening through to PV, to Brian, to Sri, a lot of it was around trust, transparency. Who do you get your information from? And and are they a viable source of, of advice? Like if you're going to just an RMN to get your advice and we're saying no to linear TV, that's maybe not the best advice. If you're going just to your agency of record, who's incentivized to traffic and run and has built decades of, of great connections to trade desk and has their own rate card. And now the opportunity of retail media presents itself, which is, you know, they're disincentivized to invest in that, nor do they have the, the access to all of the raw item data and, and SKU sales. And conversely, we, we don't have the seats with, with linear TV buying. That's not sure something traditional retail media network has done. So then you're sitting back at the uh, CMO suite of a CPG wondering, who do I get advice from? And we can't be in this adversarial position, right? Because then you've got the merchant sales relationship showing up over here. That's kind of disconnected. Bringing all that together, which is the the premise of our garage here, and, and it really a lot of the mantra you guys bring to the market, let's just talk about it. Get it all out. Get it aired out. A CPG ultimately has to make the right decision. They used to be able to go to one agency and get most of their needs met. Now they're going to have to diversify. A lot of them already are. Some are even bringing it in-house. You know what? I'll do search myself. Thank you very much. And then, but having that control and sense of like, I'll map out the four or five or 10 different solutions I'm willing to put up with. And I'll be in charge of pulling those levers, including like doing their own item data maintenance. If they're not seeing consistency with the retailer, get on top of it, force them to clean it up. That's all hurting you in that digital execution down the road. So not to say this is CPG's responsibility to fix. That's not the point here, but we can help them fix it by being present, being transparent, showing up. Christy calls it the co-op garden. I mean, that extends into every conversation. It's like JBPs for everybody. Bring in the agency record, bring in the niche shopper agency with the CPG, with the merchant, with the RMN. That's going to be one big meeting. But, uh, you know, cascade that out over a couple strategic meetings from the CPG. And I think those dots start to connect. Yeah, and to some degree, the CPGs and the retailers are going to, to have to, at times, facilitate the harmony between all of those agencies and third parties that they are trying to use to execute because they're not naturally organically going to play well in the same same sandbox and so there's there's a there's a method of kind of getting everybody to the table to agree to cooperate understand what your lanes are and and get it done the right way that's what's going to drive excellence i also want to go back to who you you put out there who do you trust right i would trust the person who can give me metrics who has reliable measurement techniques and more importantly, consistent and sustainable techniques. Today, nobody, um, maybe nobody's harsh, 85, 90% of the universe is still not building confidence that the measurement techniques are where they need to be. There's a 15% that is. So obviously you're gonna trust that 15%, that RMN, that agency partner who's making the effort with the RMN to uh, bring measurement techniques that are both sustainable and reliable. 
Hmm. Now, here's the good news. The commercial hmm. airline industry has been in business for 100 years now. And last time I saw a stanchion sign at Seattle Airport, it mentioned that there are 15 different configurations of carry-on bag size. So you guys, you know, in the retail media space, you know, that's the, that's the benchmark you're going up against. So if you can solve it in less than 100 years – around some of the standardizations <laughs> and methodologies, then yeah. you have put the airline industry to shame. I, I, do, I do think, though, I think the other, thing that's, the other thing that's interesting, though, is a conversation that we have a lot on the, on the CPG guys, which is that there's two problems. I think there's two conceptual problems with me measurement because I, I don't know anything about the math of how stuff is actually measured. But I think there's two conceptual problems, one of which is, is that there's a number of metrics, notably the great four-letter word ROAS, that everybody sort of agreed upon as something we're all trying to do that is appropriate for some things, but not for a wide range of things you're actually trying to accomplish. And oftentimes, <clears throat> oftentimes what happens is, is that what's measurable then drives the marketing that you do rather than the marketing you do being tied to a business objective and then figuring out how to measure tr trying to figure out how to measure what it is that you know makes sense and i think that that dynamic is an interesting one i also think the other one that's i think particularly endemic to the amazon ecosystem in an area where on the channel retail media has a chance to really differentiate itself to some degree is the granular and biddable nature of everything mm -hmm. on amazon look i mean granularity and biddability sounds perfect until you realize that it's a weird way to solve marketing as a problem, right? Like, I mean, like if everything I need to do be, needs to be granular enough to be bid for a specific instance at a specific moment in time, there's no company in the world that's good enough at architecting all of that stuff into a story to be able to actually, from that, build a coherent and cogent objective-based media plan out of that. All you're going to do is optimize ROAS 76 million times on 76 million discrete activities, but you're not going to know whether what you did in the end makes any sense. And the reason I know this is because for those of us that grew up in the analog world, this is something we discovered with trade spend 30 years ago, which is that you could spend... You could optimize every trade promotion you ran and end up with a pile of garbage as a strategy at the end of it because 97% of what works in trade spend is lowering price. So you would go through and lower the price on everything, drive a great ROI on every spend that you made, and at the end of it, your brand would be in a significantly worse place than when you started. That kind of thing, I don't think the digital ecosystem to be brutally honest, is very good at that. Like, it's very good at figuring out what are we actually trying to do rather than what can we measure and how do we make the thing that we measure incrementally better over time and how do we A-B test our way through that. I don't think the digital ecosystem is very good at stepping back and saying, what are we actually trying to accomplish? And then how do we set up what we're doing to reflect what we're trying to accomplish? And then how do we then measure it? Well, so, I love you that know, I'm take. scratching my head about something. In, in the last 48 hours, in this, in this podcast, 41 odd minutes of recording. How are we gotten on a conversation here where we haven't talked about one very important thing where the Christmas miracle came early and Santa Claus delivered? And that is batting second, number 22, left fielder, Juan Soto to the Yankees. Oh, and look at Peter's face. God. Okay. He did not want to hear that. He did not want to hear I, that. See, I thought he was going to mention the fact that the newest member of the girl band sensation Cat's Eye is Cat's Eye. Is Juan Soto. Is Soto and, the, and, one of the, and one of the others. I rub, it, rub that into Peter a few times. Now, now we talked about Shri's older daughter, Rhea Raj, being yep. a great recording artist, but his yep. younger daughter, Lara tactics. is the newest member of the guy, the Hive Geffen Records band sensation Cat's Eye. So she, in this guy, I don't know where the talent came from. I've heard this guy sing. He has a voice made for silent movies, but his <laughs> mm. daughters uh, are sweet sirens. They are phenomenal. Yeah, yeah they are. Peter and I shared that we also yeah. have radio faces. So it, that's yeah, we have faces made for perfect. podcasting. We're good. Well, well, well but, but the one Soto analogy, right? No, no, I don't. I don't think any, I don't think anybody's looking to Netflix to license the TV rights. <laughs> no, I'm not worried about so that. So, so uh, the one the Soto analogy and why I chose to bring that up, besides rubbing it into Peter and the Dodgers, I was I was, I was wondering why. Yeah, why why it came up is <laughs> I start looking at the retail media budgets. Talk to many of the peer sets in the industry brand. I represent a brand side and that's where I've been trained 28 years. 
It's a little bit like the Juan Soto trade where the numbers have grown from did not exist to something astronomical and brands are still struggling to justify every element of why it's grown and how it's grown. Should it, just, should it sustain? But the point is the numbers have grown outpaced what I would call any form of reasonable growth and maturity. And that's why I use the word right up front. There's going to be a great reckoning for retail media in 2024. Mm. I don't say that in a negative way. I say that in a way that it was overdue and it needs to happen. Most important part of that reckoning is actually measurement and metrics, uh, not, not other things. I think consistency in measurement and metrics and optimization is the way to go. Mm. Do you think you simplify it down to a simple metric of did it sell more stuff faster? I'm actually not a fan of using that as the metric like ROAS because that's what we do today because then that creates artificial sugar highs of movement and then search is the only thing anyone wants to do. I, I feel a brand should define what the objective on a campaign should be just like it's done with any other advertising vehicle. That could be, a, for example, when you're launching an innovation, you might want to drive new household penetration. And that may be glance views as an example. That may be, are they looking at reviews? That may be how long what was the hover time on the PDP? And maybe it's connected back to the store, to a display of some sort. Mm -hmm. It doesn't always have to be, is it in the cart? Was it shopped? Was it checked out? Things of that nature. It really needs to be based on a brand objective. So Street, coming back at that then, how do you how do you broach the conversation with agencies, with brands, with, with those that are hyper-focused on the return on ad spend then? How do you broach the conversation to say, this may not have that because our goal and objective was different? So think about how it's done on Google today. It's done by an attribution model and I'm very comfortable with that attribution model ecosystem when it's a brand objective versus full funnel marketing, which is actually get the full piece of the data and actually measure the real outcome. Um, but I think that's important so that when the brands decide, here's how I want to launch something or here's how I want to go after household penetration, that is the number one objective versus I just have to sell, 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 sell. Because that the sell formula is nothing but a search formula. And when that happens and we all say search is where we want to go, we're artificially just increasing even second price auction, we're artificially increasing it. Yeah, they're kind of just throwing darts at each other. I, I, I like the. I mean, we are we are here to defend science and data and, and repeatable processes, but they don't go. They don't cover all problems, as you very well articulated, Sri. You know that that bidding model of reducing it down to the the most mechanical bits and bytes is great for a problem that you know exactly how to solve. And this is, this is going to be your twenty seventh year doing it. Absolutely grind it down to its bare minimum and, and get the best price. But brands are forever launching new products. Generations are forever evolving. Publishers publishers are forever evolving. So then different ad units, different ecosystems, time of year, location, inventory, price positions, coupon availability, never ending amounts of, of variable and change. So that human element is still very critical, especially if you can plan it out with a larger chunk of people, which definitely are not going to be in the bidding auction, right? The end cap at Safeway is, is likely not going to show up in the trade desk in the next couple of weeks, maybe the next couple of years, but those things require human intervention. And if you've got an end cap and a coupon supporting that display investment through through your favorite publisher, I guarantee you it'll work better, but it's not biddable through the trade desk or Google. It's a phone call, it's an Excel okay. sheet, it's making your, your merchants happy. Right, well, and this is one of the things that strikes me about some of your larger digital competitors that run you know, these sort of standalone events, you know, Let's it, it rhymes with rhyme day and the the notion that I mean and, and brands are piling into the stuff and you know but which is great except for you know once those numbers get big enough and they get sort of embedded into a commercial plan somewhere because I think the the thing about the whole e-commerce ecosystem is that it has grown up in a world where it's basically been unplanned growth to some degree like you know it's all it's all quote incremental not not legitimately incremental no one knows if it's actually incremental but the mechanical way that a cpg cpg company plans volume it's been incremental because it's not part of a business that's responsible for delivering a specific number versus a specific number they delivered last year that's the way it used to be now the e-commerce business is so is big enough that it has to be planned in a certain way and when you start to embed expensive high volume activities into that plan 
you inevitably regret it. I was talking to a vendor about this the other day about God bless Costco and their multi-vendor mailer. They got into this thing 20 years ago. They still can't get out of it because the amount they sell every every month that year in the multi-vendor mailer is so big that if they got out of it, they'd have to close the factory because <laughs> they don't because that's now how the factory plans its manufacturing for that product. And the problem with doing this at that scale in a biddable ecosystem is if you've got two brands that need that volume that need to bid on that event, you're going to, this is going to get astronomically expensive really fast. And no one's thinking through this problem at all. Like we're just going to go, we're going to go set ourselves up for a situation where we're going to become more and more dependent on the outcome of successful bids to make our commercial plans, making our, not making our commercial plan for publicly traded companies is not an option. So we're then going to end up in a situation where we're way overspending on things, I think really fast, but PVSB, you see a, a lot. So where, where has it go? Where's it going? Right. Where are some, where have you seen some best in class collaborations where there's some you can point to and say there's a hot spot where we should scale and replicate that? Yeah, I think <clears throat> so. There, there's some. I, I like where you're taking digital activations and then using that may not be retail media in nature, and then you're building upon it. I think about what Mondelez did with Albertsons around Oreo coats. I thought that was a really inventive approach, and then they built retail media as a as a, a support to that particular initiative, and it was designed to get people engaged in physical retail by scanning packages of milk and the barcodes that, when you turn it over, it looks like a bunch of Oreo cookies stacked up. I mean, and then and then using this as a mechanism to drive in-store activation, which is for retailers, as Shree said, for retailers like Albertsons, where ninety percent of the volume is still occurring. If you're not doing something that's helping justify an activation or or outcomes that that disproportionately benefit the physical store for a retailer that is predominantly a physical a brick and mortar sales company then you're probably not doing it right so i think things like that are, are really good ways to approach it oh, I'd, I'd love your opinion guys. Way, three, uh, go ahead sorry there are best in class examples that exist it's you know everything i said today might feel like gloomy and doomy in retail media there's plenty of best in class examples. The the best in class examples always have one thing that are universal. And that one thing that does exist is they look at a 360 of Omnichannel when yeah. they build, when they use retail media. It starts with the consumer, it has a brand objective, and it ends in the store. Yeah. Yep. yep. Everybody and write that, that down. <laughs> yeah, and that the collection of people involved in that understand even if it's within quote silos at the cbg company those people understand either the holistic business problem or the work and the language of the other people they're working with well enough to facilitate a constructive cross-functional conversation because that's that's really the critical yep. piece because that's the because without the ability and right now and to shri's earlier point i think this is arguably more broken on the CPG side than it is on the retail side, where the number of touch points that a CPG company has that are involved in digital marketing are so diverse and that their understanding of success is so different. You know, it's the classic story of seven blindfolded people holding an elephant, right? Like they all think they're holding something different. None of them think they're holding an elephant and a couple of people think it smells really bad. <laughs> I love that story. Um, so, uh, There's something where beautiful you are, in there though. So. Like the CPGs are, are huge fans of giving the American shopper choice right i always remember a friend who traveled from uh, somewhere in eastern europe to to canada where i'm from but very similar have you seen the oreo section <laughs> in a in an albertson yeah. store it's 12 feet wide right so when you talk about choice and variability and inconsistency i mean the the consumer is forced and likes that much choice and over time they choose the the type of of oreo they're going to buy but that was the that was the comment pv is uh someone coming from a different country looking at yeah. the amount of they call it, uh, well, analysis paralysis is what we would call it in a, in a uh, university class. But it was really, a, they looked at it like a, like a problem, not a gift. And, you know, even the, you go to the frozen pizza section, yeah. there are literally what, 37 brands selling frozen pizza. But even something less basic, more basic, like well, frozen well, corn. And they all have to have a cheese and a pepperoni version. Absolutely. Which immediately. <laughs> takes up more but, if you really but, wanted but you would want iterations and many different flavors but everyone wants a piece of where most of the volume right is. right no standardization sorry brian let but me just so then does rmn need to here. 
counteract that, right? What if we show up as the 17 different pizza uh, options, just like they're putting that into our stores? Are we putting that into the market as a good thing? Right. They have to go and pick and choose. Not that I want to put work on someone's shoulders, but that variety is somewhat beautiful. It certainly spurs innovation. You see a lot of new advancements, a lot of new custom products. I'd like to see some standardization on the things that aren't quite so unicorny, but it does sp- inspire us to move faster and move in new directions, just like the CPGs do with new products. The, 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 the Juan Soto-esque tangent I'll go on here for a minute on the, on the choice thing is interesting because I think it actually is illustrative of something. Um, American shoppers don't like more choice than other shoppers. I've done global shopper research. That, that's just categorically untrue. Like if you actually, American shoppers are used to yeah, more choice okay. than other shoppers, but they don't prefer it. They're used to more choice because here's why. In Europe, because there's always the one you compare and contrast it to, or Australia, or even Canada, there's two things that are always different about stores in those markets. Number one, they're markedly smaller. So the amount of choice you can present is just limited by physical space. And even in a European hypermarket, like a Carrefour, which is the size of a Walmart supercenter, 70% of that store's volume was done on Saturday because the opening hours in Europe were so restrictive. So the shelf is 64 feet long, not to have 200 variations of Oreos, but to have enough holding power on the one everybody wants to buy so they don't go out of stock on Saturday. So the economic model that underpinned all this framed consumer choice, and then the consumers got used to it, and now it's different. I think today what we have done is done the same thing from a marketing point of view because of the economic incentives of all the parties involved. The consumer's used to something. Whether they like it or not is a wide open question, right? I'm not sure any of that's true. They are certainly used to it, but I think there's an opportunity to short circuit path to purchase. As you know, I saw it on TikTok, I bought it on Amazon, right? Like that whole thing suggests that the complex multivariable path to purchase is the outcome of a complex multivariate incentive system in marketing, not what the shopper actually wants to do. What the shopper may actually want to do is see it on TikTok and buy it immediately, right? And maybe and maybe we create an ecosystem that does what the shopper wants. And that ecosystem may look quite different than the one that we actually Yeah, I think Evan would agree with me that like you made mention of different markets and the the reason that it's the restrictive hours of operation in Europe necessitate like north of the border, Canadians would have the same problems as the Americans in terms of an over yeah. overwhelming choice, if not for the fact that the Canadian government requires that all packaging be bilingual. Because if they didn't, and it could just be English, every manufacturer would just ship what they're manufacturing for the U.S. and send it north to Loblaws. And they would then be faced with the same bevy of choices that most American consumers are. Yeah, and they'd hate it. I'm reminded of when we were doing a UPC optimization uh, project back pre-COVID, and then COVID kind of did our job for us, and we realized very quickly on some of the late-night talk shows when they would take pictures of what remained in the grocery stores, what we didn't need to cream dardvark, probably don't need it, right? That's that the third skew of it, perhaps, we don't need to carry. So we just I, it, it, lavender scented cream dardvark. Well, you're saying is not yeah, good. Lemon scented, double stop, lemon, double lemon scented goes. Lemon scented flies <laughs> off the shelf. So lavender can probably go out. Yeah, the I think yeah. I think the first week of March 2020, you could walk into a grocery store and and make the same conclusions about what was still left on the shelf as yeah, people what were we trying need? to hoard. Yeah, you're, you're, this rationalization you could do at that moment was pretty it powerful. Was pretty, enough, it, so. it really shortened the timeline on that project, if I remember correctly. But listen, guys. <laughs> We, we're, we're wrapping on time here. One of the things we like to do towards the end of our shows here is ask our guests a, a couple of the same questions so we can calculate some data here. If there was one thing you could change about the industry, uh, and Shree, try to skew positive, but if there was one thing you could change about the industry here, <laughs> wave your magic wand, what would it be? PBSB, I'll start with you. Yeah, I'd move. I, my mind is already into trade shows for the next year. I want to move CESC space out of the area, <laughs> Sky Suites, because those elevators are just such a major bottleneck. I mean, I spend half an hour just trying to get up to a C-suite, and then I've got to go back down and go up to the next one. So I would yeah, – but no. To me, it's, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll pass it on to Sheree and Brian for the serious stuff, though. Fair. I would, I, I would actually go back in time – and I would have strongly encouraged senior executives, irrespective of retail and and or CPG or agency, to have taken RMN on much more seriously five years ago and built standards like the IAB is chasing today and build measurement techniques 
and build sustainable formulas for it to be plugged into media budgets from day one as as it belongs there? I'll give you two quick ones. One, I wish that more retail media networks did what one of the small regional grocery changes just done with attribution windows, which is instead of trying to put an attribution window on something, it's basically just said just Go in and pick your own. Like, um, we don't care. Like, I mean, just d- do whatever you want. Like, I mean, so make it make it comparable how you want it. Not, I, I think, I think that the marketplace being more responsive to the needs of buyers as a general thing, I think, is one thing that would be would be great. But I do think secondarily, I think that's, I think an appropriate degree of humility from the people that measure marketing performance around what the limitations are of what they do. And to approach the problem with an open heart and a curious mind, rather than a mandate to do things the way that they want to do it, I think that would be really helpful. Because I think it would allow very different conversations around this stuff that today I think are are deeply restricted because everyone, it used to be in a business meeting, you could end any conversation by saying you needed to get the lawyers involved. Now you can end any constructive business conversation with the phrase when you lean back in your chair, put your chin in your hand and go, yeah, but how are we going to measure it? And all of a sudden, you kill every good idea in the world that way. It's like, I don't know how we're going to measure it. We'll figure it out. Is it a good thing to do? Measurement shouldn't be driving the bus. Measurement should be on the bus. Guys, what are the next industry buzzwords? What do we need to watch out for? Artificial intelligence. It's not just AI on its own. AI, I think, is real stuff. Like AI is already, AI is alive today and well on its way. Like we're in the fifth generation of, the one that I think is a buzzword is generative AI. Yeah. Mm, okay. Yeah, that's that's yeah. the key. I'm going to say there's a shift in a buzzword. We've talked a long time about the term uh, customer lifetime value. I think there's an adjustment going on right now that it's now being redefined as customer long-term value. This concept of really yes. owning lifetime is is unrealistic. It's much more about defining a longer time frame mm-hmm. and being able to measure the performance over that longer term period not an expectation that what the real lifetime value of that consumer is and when you and when you do the math anything past three years on customer lifetime value is so discounted from an roi point of view it's, it's like a weather anyway. forecast so, after so, three so. days it's worthless <laughs> it's, it's, it's a more ac- it's a more accurate description of what we were always doing with customer lifetime value so yes i applaud i applaud the correct vocabulary or in so. Boise, you just wait five minutes but, I, but I also think right that here. you know we talked about generative ai and part of that is i think people really do need to understand natural language processing Mm -hmm. and how that contributes to generative AI and being able to train against data assets. And brands are going to have to start understanding that, you know, trainable data data sources for natural language processing, if if it's available to you, it's if you're online and you're using a public tool and it's available to you, it's also available to your competitors. So anything you do to enter, even asking ChatGPT a question. That's something that's going to benefit your competitor because ChatGPT is going to learn from you and it's going to help other people. Well, and but the skill sets involved in figuring out how to teach it, it's going to be a yep. real critical one. The other thing is, is that, sorry, but the supermarket industry, given the large scale of highly multivariable data that's available, to, which is basically somebody's weekly grocery basket, lends itself better to AI than just about any other data ecosystem in the world. So I would suspect that an enormous amount of the innovation in AI is going to come out of the supermarket data ecosystem because its data is perfect for AI applications. You can create hundreds of meaningfully different behavior-based segmentations for audiences, and there's no way to be able to do anything with that from a content perspective without AI be helping in terms of appropriate tone or appropriate language or appropriate imagery. So there's a lot here on the generative AI front in the supermarket business. And I would really expect the supermarket industry to be leading the way on that. I'm going to predict for 2024 that by the end of 2024, generative AI is going to be the predominant mechanism by which PDP, at least textual content, is developed. Because it's just it's going to be the tool and we've already seen announcements that a lot of retailers are using this to help pop take a packet flat and turn it into a meaningful pdp it's it's going to be a core component of of content development for search well iceman hollywood jester 
Evan, you feel like you've been through a washing machine at this point? Well, yeah. I mean, we knew this was coming. We invited this uh, pain upon ourselves. But that, that amount of information <laughs> <laughs> and yourself. industry feedback, you just can't get. You just can't get that anywhere else. So we uh, we love the feedback, the challenges. I think we're aligned on most big things, though. But, but I've learned a couple things today. You guys are rock stars. We really appreciate you coming on uh, and into the garage. You are free to go on to your next class. Be sure to wash your hands with the orange soap in the back. But thank you so much for being in the garage, guys. And and, and we'll look for you stuck at the elevators at CES. Thank you for having us. 